came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come to America. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here. It's Sunday morning. One great show for you. We have Governor David Patterson. What's going on in New York? What's going on in Albany? We have former Congressman Peter King. We have Steve Cates about what's going up on up there in the moon. Ed Cox, of New York State uh, Chairman of GOP. And uh, let's start off with Mike Stoller talking about the real estate industry in New York. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning I have a very seasoned real estate administrative executive of the accounting and professional firm. He is the senior managing director of CBiz Marks Paneth and a shareholder of Mayor Hoffman and McCann PC. Abe, I've known you for a couple of years, and how do you look at the market today as compared to, let's say, five years ago when you were in a different role at the company and so, so on? So definitely interesting times. Um, what I would say is, you know, uh, you know, you turn back the clock five, six years ago, and any time you had a conversation like this or at any conference, the, bi- the big discussion was what inning are we in in the cycle? Um, so uh, since you asked the question, what inning are we in? I think we're way past the extra innings right now. Um, uh, we're in an exciting time um, where every pitch counts. And uh, it's, uh, you know, even back then, I was always a big proponent of every, every uh, even in, within real estate. You had commercial, you had residential, you had hospitality, you had industrial. And, and each of the different in, uh, classes had their own, uh, uh, where they were holding the business cycle and, and in the environment. And uh, it's an exciting time in New York City. Um, do we have challenges? A thousand percent. We have a lot of challenges here. Um, people are talking about whether or not the office market will return, won't return. All I know is I just walked up Third Avenue coming here, and it's hustling and bustling. Um, I don't know where. But Third is- Avenue for many people is the low cost advantage. So, correct. Um, but you know, then again, you go a few weeks ago. I was in Times Square, um, eleven forty-five at night, and it felt like it was two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, you go Fifth Avenue, Seventh Avenue, uh, Madison Avenue. Pick, pick any street in Manhattan. Um, generally speaking, there's always exceptions. Generally speaking, um, you walk up and down the streets of Manhattan now, and it literally feels like 2018 um, all over again. But now, getting to the uh, you know, the clients' question, how are the clients being affected right now? Uh, they're managing through. Um, uh, so let's take the office space for a second. Uh, which is where I deal a lot with. Um, so office space is going through a interesting times. Um, generally speaking, many companies are in the midst of assessing whether or not they need the same amount of foot, footprint that they needed before, um, uh, while many companies are saying, you know what, we need the same amount of footprint, but we're just going to use it differently. Uh, let's, let's talk about using it differently, because many people in the professional business used hoteling before. Okay, so I'd like you to explain what hoteling is and what today's market looks like. So hoteling is a concept that's been around for many years. This is way Pro- before Probably COVID. a quarter of a century. This right. is way before even uh, you know, work from home was even a thought process. 
Uh, and and basically, people that don't want to come into the office on a full time basis um, for a variety of reasons, and uh, the office uh, uh, space works around that those decisions and and how to fit everyone into the into the work model, fitting the right amount of times that people come into the office to work together with each other, and uh, to the extent that you can minimize your footprint but maximize the output from all your employees is obviously the optimal. Uh, way to maximize cost versus benefit. When we spoke earlier in the week, um, there was a discussion of what the occupancy is in New York of people and how much in the suburban. Discuss that a little bit. So the suburban offices' uh, occupancy is significantly higher than in New York City. Um, why that is, we can debate forever. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, as um, the lockdowns opened up, People that had shorter commutes, um, people that didn't have to use public transportation, uh, were uh, quicker to go back to the offices. Um, I know that in many of our, not many, almost all of our suburban offices, by June or July of 2020, the vast majority of the people back in the offices, while in New York City, uh, it took a lot longer. And quite frankly, even as we see there today in the summer, actually, I guess we're now here past the summer, almost fall of 2023. Um, we still don't have the majority of people back in the office. Okay, getting to another subject. Uh, when you and I met, one of the big subjects was the opportunity zones. So why don't you explain what the opportunity in zones, and if there's still an opportunity, as they would say, to get involved with that. So, uh, yes, Mike and I have had the, the, the fortune to spend quite a few uh, times talking about opportunity zones. Um, and uh, so opportunity zones, um, for those that, uh, let's go back to the videotape, for those that aren't familiar with it, as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, passed at the end of 2017. It was during throughout 2018, it was on the front page of every single uh, business newspaper in the country. Um, and it was a, no pun intended, it was a huge opportunity for those that, that wanted to benefit from it. Um, it had a lot of tra- tremendous amount of traction, uh, of traction in 2018, 19, into 2020 as well. Um, and then COVID sort of slowed things down, uh, partially because of the economy um, and uncertainty about where the future will go. As we move forward to 2021 and some of the benefits, the tax benefits we're going to start, we're going to start expiring. Um, people accelerated again. Um, as we sit here today in the middle of 2023, it's not as hot as it was a few years ago. Um, that being said, there are still plenty of uh, developers, business owners. Um, that are still uh, maximizing opportunities, and uh, there's, there's still a lot of there are tremendous amount of benefits um, that 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 business owners and real estate owners and developers uh, can see there. Um, I, I've been saying for many years, it's 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 not the hype that everyone was saying, but it's not the bashing that a lot of people were, uh, a lot of the newspapers were uh, putting on it. I'd like to thank Abe for being here today, and I'll see you next week on the Stoller Real Estate Report. Thank you, Mike. With us today is Governor David Patterson, and uh, he calls us in every Sunday morning to find out what the heck is going on in our city, our state, our country. And uh, Governor, uh, tell us, uh, what are you thinking of this Sunday morning? Well, John, uh, very briefly, Governor Hochul in in the last few days has really changed her position about the migrants, completely supporting Mayor Adams, what he's been saying for a couple of months which is that this is really a federal problem that got dropped on New York City and New York State without any particular assistance, 
no plan to solve the problem, and a terrible uh, way of uh, treating your other colleagues in government. But that being said, um, there was a federal appeals court decision, John, two weeks ago, uh, uh, Friday. It was September 8th, and it involved a situation that happened in 2020. Uh, In the fall, right after the election, some doctors got together, and they offered a plan that they thought would help in, in the pandemic. And what they wanted to do was to relax some of the closed offices and just closing down the government and closing down, you know, just about all activity in favor of spending more time on people who were, um, you know, obviously endangered by the virus, older people, people with illnesses, and basically let everyone else do what they wanted to do, which is what we have now. Now, to be honest with you, John, I don't think that would have been the right call at that moment because after the virus seemed to wane in the summer of 2020, it spiked again in the fall of 2020. But that's not why I was so interested in this decision. Apparently, when this decision was made, the incoming administration of um, President Biden, uh, (laughs) the uh, Surgeon General, the CDC, and the FBI coerced social media companies to uh, censor and not allow these doctors to speak. And, the, um, and this was just uh, kind of outrageous because this was a free speech in- in- incident. Their Facebook's uh, pages were, um, uh, were removed. Uh, Google uh, de-boosted them. And um, uh, the uh, main doctor who was involved his whole profile was taken off of Twitter, all of this at the same time. And the court, the lower court under uh, a judge by the name of uh, Ted DeRoe, uh, the, they found as a matter of fact that the uh, federal, that the, uh, uh, the, the uh, courts, the, uh, sorry, the agencies were actually threatening these companies, at, uh, telling them, that if they didn't comply with this request, that they would uh, have a regulatory reprisals. In other words, they were going to really investigate them until they found something, which is a total misuse of, of government. What, so, well, what is happening you, to our country, uh, Governor? I mean, uh, how, you know, when you well, have these agencies go after uh, uh, and, and you can't protect yourself from the, with the courts, what, what's going on? Well, John, this is exactly our country was founded. Our our First Amendment to our Constitution involved freedom of speech, and they were actually stamping out the freedom of speech. And like I said, I didn't agree with the doctor's decision, but they certainly had the right to to, to make it. That was Voltaire. You know, I may disagree with you, but you have a right to speak. But this was really, in addition to denying their freedom of speech, they were trying to ruin these people's careers. And I'm going to tell you, um, it went right to the top in, in this administration. So the National Institute of Health uh, director, whose name was Francis Collins, knew all about this, um, gave a lot of the orders, and then reported it to Dr. Fauci. This is outrageous that this would go on. But the good news is that uh, a three-judge panel that operates out of New Orleans threw out 
and and uh, so the doctor has now won his lawsuit and can practice and speak his, his mind. But this is an extremely dangerous thing that was allowed to happen that went up to the highest pinnacles of government, and I think it's outrageous. Uh, I agree with you, Governor. And, you know, and we've seen this happen in the last few years with the, the Justice Department, and it doesn't, you know, it's supposed to be equal justice for all, and it, uh, it doesn't seem like it is. Uh, I was, uh, were you surprised uh, a couple of days ago on uh, Friday uh, uh, when they indicted uh, uh, Senator Menendez? I kind of was surprised because he was indicted and was uh, found not guilty, I believe, back in 2016. But um, I would tend to think that if someone was indicted previously and beat the charges, if you indict him a second time, you must have some real convincing evidence. Now, I don't know anything about this case, but I'm just saying that the bar to uh, in investigating and then charging him had to be higher. And if they reached it, then uh, he's got a real difficult time ahead of him. Yeah. You know, I would, I would think that he, uh, going through that the first time, that he would be a little more careful uh, and uh, make sure that uh, – Every I is dotted and every T is crossed, but uh, yeah, and very, actually, very the sad. main thing, yes, yeah, so the main thing was that he is being accused of trying to block uh, the New York, the New Jersey State Attorney General from investigating a company that was uh, uh, acting outside the law, and uh, that was what got him involved in this particular situation. It's very sad, uh, you know, uh, government officials, all of us, past and present. Uh, have a duty to the public, and and it's and it's a it's a strong responsibility, and too many of us violate it. I'm not saying that he did in this case; he's innocent until proven guilty. But it's just another story that uh, we'd rather not hear. Uh, we got another minute or so left. What else would you like to talk to Sunday morning? I mean, I'm drinking my cup of coffee, and uh, I'm wondering what the heck is going on. Well, as I open the show, I believe now that the governor and the mayor are seeing eye to eye on this situation with the migrants, that those combined forces now place the whole responsibility squarely on the federal government who dumped all these people in and really didn't send any aid to, to assist and then seemed to scoff at the notion that, they, that, that this was not being appreciated. But this is going to happen in other cities and in other states. And it's going to pile up not only for governmental operation problems for the federal government, but also political problems. Well, Governor Patterson, thank you for, so much for calling in this Sunday morning. And uh, God bless you and God bless America. And, and we'll catch up. Uh, John, we'll I love coming on. Talk to you next week. Thank you. This is the Cash Roundtable. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable.
with us today is former Congressman Peter King and uh, lived in New York all his life, a congressman for 28 years. Congressman King, what is up uh, this weekend that upsets you and, 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 and not going right? And uh, what's going on is really, I think so much happening is damaging to New York. I mean, uh, uh, just this week, you realize, you know, all the U.N. trafficking, all the people in that New York is the, uh, uh, you know, the capital of the world. But it's, it's going to be fascinating losing that title with so many people moving out from the migrant issue. We saw in Staten Island and what we're seeing uh, out uh, in Queens near the Nassau County border and just the thousands of uh, migrants coming in illegally is a, uh, to me, going to have an imp- a, uh, economic impact on the city. It's going to have an uh, impact as far as housing, as far as services, as far as quality of life. And then you add to that all you know, the marijuana that's and then, publicly. Well, we got the marijuana problem. Uh, President Biden refused to meet with Mayor Adams, and then he met with uh, Governor Hochul and declared the Venezuelans as automatic immigrants. What's the right uh, name? Yeah, yeah, basically, you know, they're entitled to work visas right away. They, they, they can be hired. They can get jobs right away. And the fact is they came in the country illegally. Uh, there's thousands of them here. And, you know, they're jumping the line of other people who are waiting to uh, come in illegally, stay here illegally. And even though they say it only applies to people who came before July 31st, this has to look like an incentive to other illegal immigrants who see this or people who think of being illegal immigrants. And they can get in the country, they ask for asylum, and basically they end up staying forever. And they can take jobs, jobs which you know, some Americans might want, and certainly immigrants who come in illegally will be looking for. And yet they, for whatever reason, whatever philosophical reason, aggressive reason, uh, people like uh, the governor and certainly the president, who has opened up the borders, uh, are uh, able to, uh, in their mind, they're able to justify allowing these people to stay here. And uh, also, John, what we see with that is just a you know, breakdown in regards to the law. And as you said, he wouldn't need the president to not meet with the mayor. Now, you know, you or I could disagree with the mayor on certain things, but he is the mayor. And the fact is that he is, you know, the legal representative of New York. And New York is being overwhelmed. New York City is being overwhelmed with the migrant issue, the migrant problem, with all of the issues that go with it. And yet the president who created this problem wouldn't even meet with the mayor, who is the one who has to deal with it. So while I've been critical and you've been critical of you know, the way uh, the mayor has handled all this, the fact is that if he doesn't get help from the president, he's not going to be able to solve it at all. He's not going to be able to resolve it. So this, to me, was a, uh, a real slap in the face by the uh, president to Mayor Adams. And no matter what political party we're in, we should stand with the mayor that the president should have met with him. Now, what we see down in Staten Island, and to me, it's really unfortunate because you have migrants being pushed into good, quiet residential neighborhoods and causing the people to rise back, uh, rise up and to fight back. Then they end up basically in disputes and arguments with the police who are just doing their job there. So we can't allow ourselves to be divided by this progressive policy, which is harmful to everyone and certainly harmful to people in, in those communities. I mean, you have really only a good family-oriented uh, community in Staten Island, and to have people just bust in and dropped in, see citizens' homes and uh, schools and everything else is just so damaging. So you had all of that, plus the crime issue in New York. We have a case uh, just the other day where some guy hit, hit a homeless person with a baseball bat, hit him in the head with a baseball bat, knocked him down as the guy was walking in down the street. And the judge just let him out. He's not, he's not going to spend his day in jail. This is absolute 
disgrace. What kind of a signal was that set? So there's a lot going wrong, and uh, uh, the Yankees and the Mets are not going to make the World Series. So uh, right now it's not too optimistic, but, John, you know, you always say we we have to try to be optimistic and go forward. We are still the number one city in the world. We've got to do all we can to keep it that way and keep so many people with money from moving out and the uh, the revenue base leaving and uh, housing being depleted, all of these things really have to be addressed, and unfortunately, they're not being addressed. What else would you like to talk about? Did we talk about Governor Hochul has signed a a bill that I I don't think it's legal, uh, mailing uh, ballots in instead of going to a vote? Yeah, John, first of all, I I, I believe it does violate the state constitution. But to me, uh, we should do all we can to make sure that people vote on election day. That means they've seen the entire campaigns, they've informed vote, and by going there on election day, people know that their vote is an honest vote, and no one is filing a vote, it's only vote. Now, having said that, we've always had an absentee ballot program in New York, but if you have a reason why you can't be there on election day, where you're going to be uh, in sick, or you're going to be traveling, you're going to be away, then you can apply for an absentee ballot. That makes sense. But to be giving basically everyone the right to vote absentee, that leaves itself open for corruption, for harvesting of votes, for local clubs to be going around with clubs, signing people up to vote, having people vote, and then mailing them in. It's, uh, it goes against, the, to me, the democratic system with a small d, and also it lends itself either to corruption itself or people thinking that uh, corruption is happening. Because, again, there's nothing like going there, yourself, checking in, at the desk, cleared, casting your vote on, on election day, rather than a month or so before just mailing it in, mailing in a ballot that maybe the local Democrat or Republican leader gave to you. So, no, it's, it, this is just lends itself to corruption. And, again, uh, whether I like it or not or support it or not, the reality is I, I believe it violates the state constitution. Congressman Peter King, thank you for everything you've done for our country and continue to speak out for our country. And we'll catch up with you again real soon. Monday night, John. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. With us today is uh, Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky. And he's with us every Sunday morning to make us look up in the sky and see the mysteries of what's going on. Uh, Steve, what's going on this uh, weekend? Well, good morning, John. And to all the listeners of the Cats Roundtable, here's something interesting. We begin with the sun, of course, and a special probe that we haven't heard much about. Something called the Parker Solar Probe launched toward the sun in August of 2018. Why is this important? Well, this probe has gotten within 5.7 million miles of the sun. I'm surprised, John, how it hasn't burned up. That's the great technology. But it's the fastest object that humans have ever put on into space. Because the sun's gravity is 28 times whatever we would weigh on Earth and this spacecraft, it's going about 430,000 miles an hour which is still 0.064% the speed of light. But that's not the most important part. Most important part, it's actually gotten into one of those big CME, coronal mass ejections, and it's discovered something, which I'll share with you in a minute. But what the problem is with these CMEs is the sunspot energy hits the Earth, and these CMEs hit the Earth. Economists have said, John, that if we get a really big one, the cost to our economy and the world would be $41 billion a day in damage as it would hit the grid and the, uh, all of our assets. So this is an amazing solar probe, but imagine what the damage would be of one of those CMEs if it was super strong, that it's probably predicted in the future to be. Well, the sun is a true mystery. We're not going to, uh, you know, 
I'm sure it's going to keep going for another billion years, give or take a hundred million, yes. which is funny. And I, in my mind, I guess my IQ is not large enough, not larger than Einstein. I can't imagine how it burns almost for perpetuality. That's incredible because every second we talk about this crazy number. Imagine if we had to pay for this fuel, about 800 million tons of hydrogen a second, transforming it into maybe, oh, 760 million tons of helium. And you're right, John, that's been going on for 4 billion years. Let's keep our fingers crossed. But what happened with the Parker Solar Probe, what made this discovery as it gets in toward this coronal mass ejection interesting, is that these CMEs suck up dust from the entire solar system and kind of propel it out in the solar wind, which is totally amazing. But this is just crazy stuff. I mean, the science is just amazing. And now we come closer to home, John. We talk about Space Force. Now, let's say our nation needed to deploy a rocket very quickly. Let's say we had a reason to get an emergency rocket up there for whatever reason. Well, Space Force has done this in a record time of some 27 hours with a product that they have actually, you know, kind of contracted out called Firefly Aerospace's Alpha Rocket. So they did this from the time they put an order in to the time they actually launched this out at Vandenberg. It's only 27 hours. So the project is called Invictus Knox. What does it mean in Latin? It means conquer the night. So apparently our American Space Force has the ability, if we needed to, say, have a rocket up in space for whatever emergency reason or other. I find that to be incredible because there used to be a long period of time, and we both know this, John, that a rocket, if you wanted to design it or put it up in space, this literally took months, if not years. So that's a great accomplishment, don't you think? NASA, NASA would be forever. Some yeah, of the this. new private companies, I guess, have brought the time down, and, and I guess it shows you government work versus private enterprise. Yes. And then we go on to something even more phenomenal. Every week we talk here, and the listeners tell us they like it, I'm sure, the mystery of the week. How about we go biblical here, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom, of course, an ancient city destroyed along the Dead Sea, a sinful city in the book of Genesis, destroyed what? By fire and sulfur, as God revealed to Abraham of the coming destruction. And we know from history that Lot's wife was told not to look back, and she was turned to a pillar of salt. Well, astronomers have dug into this, John, and they think that there was this amazing fireball is maybe one of the reasons, like a nuclear explosion called the Jordan River Fireball. Now, this happened allegedly around 1650 B.C. So this particular explosion released tremendous amounts of sulfur and salt, and one of the indicators indicates that the Dead Sea got its salt from the after effects of this big massive explosion. And if Lot's wife was turned to salt, well, that whole region is totally amazing in salt. So isn't that an interesting hypothesis on something from the biblical side, that it might have been some sort of small asteroid or incredibly large fireball? That, to me, is just amazing and earth-rocking, no pun intended. There's also something about that I discovered uh, or read about uh, many years ago, uh, someplace in India or Pakistan, uh, yes. that uh, one of the, they, they detected that there was a nuclear explosion there a few thousand years ago. Yes. And that's Have you heard stranger. about that one? Well, John, not exactly that story. I'm always honest with you in the audience, but I can yeah. just say this. When these astrophysicists and scientists describe a nuclear-type explosion, well, we only had the nuclear processes we know in the 1940s with the Trinity explosion with Oppenheimer and the rest of the scientists. So what does that tell us? That maybe, who knows, alien beings from another world have the technology or had this technology 
and that the, we can't discount that maybe in a nuclear-type device was actually exploded on this earth a long time ago, and maybe not necessarily humankind uh, created it. That's also another plausibility as what? We expand Absolutely. our minds and keep our minds open. That's Keep amazing. our minds open. I really believe, I've told you this story many, many times when I was on the airplane mm -hmm. with one of our uh, archbishops and I said to him yes. about life on other planets and his uh, answer was, what makes you think that God only spread his seeds on this planet? Exactly, John. In the universe, if we look at just the galaxy alone, our Milky Way with maybe 100 trillion stars, let's take a billion of those 100 trillion that are Earth-like in the sense that have a sun or potential planets like this, I'm with you. I think that the universe is teeming with life. We just have to prove it. And finally, we just go on to remind people of the live sky. Here's what you can see this week very briefly. In the morning sky, Venus is that brilliant object just before sunrise in the east. You can't miss it. It's that bright. And we find that, John, this coming week, we have the beautiful the last of the supermoons. We have this beautiful super harvest moon on the 29th. And I'm hoping that the Bennu spacecraft capsule has already returned to Earth with those samples that were supposed to have landed over the weekend in the Utah desert. Amazing material from an asteroid. And we also think that life may have come from the stars, at least this scientifically, in a process called panspermia. But this material off an asteroid, we may find out that there's seeds of life. And that's what many people believe. Always check us out where? At WABCRadio.com for the Dr. Sky Experience. And always a privilege and honor, John, to be with you and the audience on this Sunday and every Sunday on the Cats Roundtable. Steve Cates, enjoy the rest of the weekend. Look forward to our discussions. And God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, John. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Ed Cox. He's the New York State GOP chairman. And so many things are happening in New York State. Ed Cox, give us a report. Where the heck are we with redistricting, with migrants, with any place you want to start? Redistricting, and they are rather cheap than compete. They could just compete for the present congressional districts. We got four more competitive congressional districts than any other state, but rather they'd rather fix it through fixing the highest court in New York by the Senate picking the chief judge they wanted rather than letting the governor do it. And now a case is coming up there, and they think they're going to win it. I don't think they are. Oh, wow. Does that mean that the judge is going to be honest and do the right thing? I think in the end, the judges on that court, now that they are no longer subject to appointment, they've got their, their tenure. I think they're going, because it's the Court of Appeals of the state of New York, they're going to do the right thing. I mean, they got rid of the other judge that didn't that didn't vote their way, and uh... yeah, they sure did. They, they <laughs> Janet DeFiore didn't vote the way. They forced her out, and they and then the Senate insisted on their candidate use, abusing their advice and consent power over the governor. They rejected a wonderful Hispanic uh, who was the presiding justice of the second department, one of the most prestigious jurist in New York State, and they rejected that jurist. And that was the judge in Suffolk County? Uh, no, no. Oh, yeah. the, the, actually, the hearing is going to be in Buffalo, and the judge is from New York, from Manhattan. Wow. I mean, they, they can't push out two judges in a row. Something will, some, something will smell, wouldn't it? It already does smell. Uh, they made a deal with the governor, and they got the chief judge. The Senate got the chief judge they wanted, and the governor got an associate judge to take the place of the chief judge who was moving from associate judge to chief judge. They have their 
quote-unquote progressive chief judge that they demanded. You have city council races in New York City, 51 out of 51, which decides how you how do you spend a hundred billion dollars? And uh, I am worried about those 51 out of 51 on common sense wise. Yeah, that, uh, definitely <laughs> issue of common sense. <laughs> they, look, this is a city council that voted to have non-citizens, non-citizens vote in elections here in New York City. I mean, that is subject to so much abuse. That is being challenged now in the courts. We've won at the lower courts. But again, it'll go up to that highest court that now has a quote-unquote progressive chief judge, and we'll see what that, what that court does. What is going to happen? I mean, uh, it was shocking today when I saw that Senator Menendez got indicted a couple of days ago on Friday. For the second time he's I mean, indicted. You would think that he would be a little more careful on, on you would doing th- stupid things. You would think so. And uh, he got, uh, I believe, convicted the first time and was overturned on a technicality, and now he's at it again. I, I t- uh, you know, I could see us uh, winning the Senate race in there after that, uh, given that amount of corruption by Senator M- Menendez. Oh, I was hearing on Friday and Saturday that former Governor Christie might run for it. That would be interesting. Uh, at the moment, he's running for president, and he's running by basically uh, a- attacking former President Donald Trump. And uh, that's what he's doing Looks like it's fairly futile that he's doing that, but he might want to run for the Senate. Of course, he was, as we all know, governor of New Jersey before that for two terms, a very blue state, and he's a Republican. It's, it's a little bit different between running for governor and running for Senate, and uh, people have tried that, uh, thinking of it like Harry, uh, Larry Hogan in Maryland, another blue state, 70% popularity as governor, but decided he would not run for the Senate. It's just a different criteria, that the way that people look at the Senate as opposed to a governor. What else would you like to talk about this Sunday morning? Uh, the things going on in Washington. I was so disappointed in uh, uh, the Attorney General's office, the rule of law. I, I have to say, to see the Attorney General of the United States bob and weave and dodge and cry because he's being grilled by the Judiciary Committee. That was just very embarrassing. He should have done much better than that. And unfortunately, we've got a very political attorney general's office. Garland himself at the top, I'm not sure he knows what's going on. But underneath him, there are some very political deputies and assistants put in there purposely to make sure that the attorney general makes the right political decisions. And that's why uh, they, they put Jack Smith on the case going after former President uh, Donald Trump for that very reason. Jack Smith is known as a creative prosecutor uh, who has lost many a case on appeal. Anything else, uh, Unvetted uh, migrants coming here. Oh, been, my God, that's a big discussion. Uh, Tell us about that. Spending $12 billion on them, put them up in expensive hotels here in New York. Look. Pull out the national. You've got a great idea. Put them in Rikers Island. Lots of beds out there. Or call out the National Guard. Set up, uh, they know how to set up encampments, field hospitals to take them, to vet them. Uh, bring in the judges who decide whether they uh, have a right to asylum or not. Settle it right there on the spot. Those that show how to be deported, deport them right away. Get the job done. Show them that New York knows how to get something done rather than just spend money on it. After all, the state 
is budget deficit over the next three years has now gone from $30 billion up to $36 billion and growing. We got a real fiscal problem here in New York State. Let's not just spend it putting up migrants in in, in expensive hotels in New York City. Uh, I understand uh, what the governor did say that on Friday, uh, where she says, uh, let's suspend uh, spending money on uh, excess money on the budget. Yeah, sure. Uh, no, she's told agencies stop spending money. Yeah. I mean, stop increasing the amounts uh, that they're that they're spending. Uh, it's hard to stop that train once it gets going. It's a little bit too late, but what we really need is, like we used to have, is a strong Republican president in the legislature that's, that's fiscally conservative, making sure that the Democrats don't run away with the budget. Well, Mr. Chairman Ed Cox, thank you for bringing all New Yorkers up to date, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. Always a pleasure to be with you, John. Thank you. Now with us is uh, Lou Dobbs, one of the country's leading economists. And to find out what the heck is going on, uh, does, uh, you know, Larry Kudlow was on before. He highly criticized Mr. Powell. Uh, Lou Dobbs, what say you? Well, I've been saying for, for years, going back to the Trump years, that the man was out of his mind to raise rates as he did. And President Trump had it exactly right, trying to constrain him. He he is a man, though, who is chastened, and I think that he is doing better now. At least he is talking about following the evidence, following the data before making another move on rates. He loves to jawbone, and I understand that. That's one of their principal tools. But beyond that, right now, I'm pleased that he paused. The market is pleased, and I believe we are going to see further constraint on his part in the feds going into the new year because we have every evidence of a slowing economy. Well, in the last 60 days, oil went back up. Brent is almost $96 again. There's going mm-hmm. to be more inflation. And, and instead of increasing, and, and, he, and Powell refuses to talk about oil, instead of increasing uh, the supply of oil in North America to bring the price, the, to bring inflation down, he may have to raise prices again on uh, on interest rates. We have to remember, John, we're still dealing with the same president as was uh, put into office in 2020. Uh, This is a man who decided to shut down, as you mentioned often, the Keystone Pipeline. He has uh, withdrawn areas where we can drill. He has reduced, uh, cut our uh, strategic petroleum reserves and sold off a good million barrels of it to the Chinese. This man is not going to suddenly find religion and start trying to restore energy independence for the United States. But we're left with an economy right now that is, we saw housing starts drop by 11% last month. We are watching the trade numbers reflect a slowing economy. Even the Chinese can't seem to pump out any kind of improvement in their trade picture, that is their exports to the United States. And as we watch, as you point out, on energy prices, we're looking at the pump now, the seasonal highs for gasoline on record. So we have a lot for to navigate here. And amongst the things we have to navigate is a slowing economy and a job-boning Fed. He's got to, in my opinion, be very constrained in moving rates higher from here because we are looking at the prospect of a significant slowdown, I believe, in the new year. Uh, Lou Dobbs, the UAW. If they keep pushing towards electric cars, why mm-hmm. are they worried about a price? A, 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 why, are they, why are they worried about a increase in a, a, a raises if they're going to cut General Motors and them? They're going to cut the uh, the staff. 
in half. Well, I think that the leadership of the UAW is doing what the leadership of the UAW has done for decades. They're going to sell out, in my opinion, they're going to sell out their membership. They're talking about a 40% raise over four years, compounded 46%. They're talking about an enriched pension plan. Now, think about that. Improving a pension plan. Pension plans are only available to about 7% of the private sector employees in this country. The union is talking big and shooting high, but the reality is there's going to be a very sudden drop awaiting the UAW membership because, as you know, about half that labor will be required if they were to succeed in going to EVs. By the way, I don't think they will be successful in that in that time frame. But nonetheless, it's quite a, if you will, internal contradiction in the UAW leadership trying to boost manufacturing wages while acknowledging their membership is on the cutting line. we got a minute left. Anything else you want to tell the American people? You know, I just want to say that uh, we've got a lot to overcome, and we're going to uh, – this economy is far from equilibrium and being a self-correcting uh, mechanism, which is what's going to be required with this kind of political and economic leadership in the country. Lou Dobbs, thank you for everything you uh, you, you say and, and tell the American people the truth. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, John. Thanks. Appreciate it. This is the Catch Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. We have Professor Alan Dershowitz. You're out there, I understand, in the protest line today. You're at the Regency Hotel near the U.N. Fill us in, Professor Dershowitz. Well, I'm not picketing. I'm speaking. I'm speaking in support of Israel and against the rabbis, these rabbis who have gone to the U.N. and picketed Israel in front of the U.N. You know, there's an old Jewish tradition that says that when Jews complain about other Jews, in front of world leaders, that is uh, one of the highest sins, and that's what's going on today. People have complaints about Israel. Okay, you voice them in Israel. Or you voice them involving, you know, in front of the uh, embassy of Israel, but you don't voice them at the United Nations. Yeah, yeah, you join the Iranian, uh, the, you know, Iranian resistance group. Don't go up against the rabbis right yeah, well, now. What is this know? about? They, they arrested the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations? Yeah, that was a wild one. Did you see that, Professor Dershowitz? No, it was, it was, no, I haven't seen it was, that. it was one of the first days of the UN earlier this week. Um, the ambassador goes in the well of the United uh, Nations General Assembly and he held up the picture oh, of the woman, yeah, right? Yeah, the woman yeah. who was killed, you know, who was killed, who was wearing Ooh. for the, who wasn't wearing the hijab, started the uprising and they booted him out. So far, the only arrest uh-huh. is the, the U.S. History, ambassador. The only arrest in the history of the United Nations. Well, you know, when when Ahmadinejad spoke at the United Nations, I led a protest and walked right up in front of him and did what I thought of him, and they took me out, too. Uh, (laughs) But you weren't arrested. (laughs) You weren't arrested, Alan. (laughs) Well, I actually was arrested in Switzerland once protesting, but... uh, I, I managed to reach somebody in the White House who got me out. Whoa. Wow. Ah. You know, I want to get to um, uh, Garland uh, because yesterday, Attorney General Merrick and, Garland. And we specifically called you, Professor, on here because you recommended him for the Supreme Court at one time. And yes. I want to know if you would do it again. Uh-oh. Yes, I think he'd been a good justice. I think he's in the wrong job. Uh, he's not really a, a person who's involved in politics. And he's not involved in day-to-day aspects of the Justice Department in terms of prosecution. And he has an impossible role to play. He said yesterday in his testimony, 
that I am not the president's lawyer. Well, you know, that may be technically true, but he is the president's political advisor in the cabinet on legal matters. And as a result of that, he has a stark conflict of interest when it comes to prosecuting people, because prosecuting and not prosecuting have political ramifications. And no human being is capable of separating in his mind and in his actions that which is supposed to be political from that which is supposed to be nonpartisan. Well, and you know, Professor Dershowitz, though, and and with, you know, I love you, Professor Dershowitz. I I found him, I found him, I use the word pathetic, and a number of other people said that. I've seen a lot of testimony. It was unbelievable. There was one moment where he was asked, um, did you speak to the FBI director about basically your boss's son, Hunter Biden? I can't recollect. I can I mean no, I mean come on you there know are a lot of great there are a lot of great judges and justices who could never withstand being questioned um if he had been appointed to the Supreme Court and confirmed to the Supreme Court nobody would ever have seen him again except asking questions not answering questions so you know he would have done a decent job as a justice I think and I thought he would do a good job as attorney general as well because he's not political but this has become such a partisan issue Look, they didn't ask him the most important question. The most important question was, why don't you appoint the special counsel to investigate President Biden and his relationships with his son, his relationships with Ukraine? Yeah, that's a great question out there. Yeah. And if I were Biden and I were innocent, I don't know if he's innocent or guilty. Nobody, none of us knows that. But if I were him and I were innocent, I'd be the one asking for a special counsel to clear the air. Because right now there's so much smoke. There's so much inference. If he's innocent, let an objective special I agree. declare his innocence. Governor yeah. David Patterson. So, uh, Alan, I think that you really cleared it up for me because I was watching yesterday trying to think of why he couldn't simplify his answers more. And and, yeah. and you should, whenever you say, I don't recall, probably 95% of the time, it's just that you don't want to answer the question. And that happened to him a few times. And then there were times when he kept saying he promised the Senate and the Congress that he wasn't going to interfere. But he does have a role. He is the head. He uh, he is the attorney general. And he seemed to walk away from his responsibility there. And it and it it, it came off very weakly. And I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think it came off very weakly. He has an impossible job. He has an impossible job. It's a fr- schizophrenic job. The chief political legal advisor to the president, whose job it is to help him get reelected on the one hand. On the other hand, he's the attorney general of the United States, the chief prosecutor. On the third hand, he's not involved in these cases because he's appointed special counsel. Now, can anybody juggle the balls that way? He didn't do a particularly good job. No, he didn't. Imagine anybody doing a really perfect job. It's an impossible role to cast him in. You know what I thought, Professor Dershowitz? I totally totally agree with you. I'm just saying that I was surprised. It seemed to me that even when he was trying to communicate a point, that he just wasn't getting the point across. And he couldn't even answer a basic question. There was a time where they said, do you have a problem with crime on the rise? Uh, the answer is, oh, uh, yeah. And he was like, oh, uh, uh, I mean, uh, I was waiting for this. Is, is today Wednesday? Uh, 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 I mean, come on. You know what? When you're giving testimony, if you can give the people who obviously they're trying to take his head off. But if you yeah. can give them something, then you look a lot more credible. It was as if if they said to him, 
are you sure today's Wednesday? He wouldn't have to answer the question yesterday. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think his advisors did not do a good job in preparing him for this as well. He should have been able to answer some questions categorically yes, categorically no, but he vacillated. I think, you know, he, he was threatened with perjury and contempt. This is John Katzman-Tedes. If you want to hear the full interview, go to WABCRadio.com. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.